Amen. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to be in Matthew 27, starting verse 27, going uh, hopefully to 56. And as we prepare this week for Holy Week, uh, we're going to look at Matthew's account of the crucifixion. And you know, this Sunday is Palm Sunday, but as you go through Matthew, we actually, you know, uh, Palm Sunday in Matthew is like chapter 23. So we got five chapters in between. So four or five weeks ago, we looked at Palm Sunday and then moving through. And this morning, we're going to anchor in what we started last week as looking at the crucifixion. And as we pick up Matthew's account of the crucifixion, it's really remarkable that Matthew gives us very little information about the actual physical suffering of Jesus. There's, there's not a lot about the blood and the beating and the flayed flesh. He leaves it to your imagination. But Matthew's focus is on something else. And the thing he primarily focuses on is on the mockery that Jesus experienced. And he's highlighting, in one sense, the most wicked act the world has ever endured. And the way he wants to tell the story is he wants to tell it through the mockery and the way they mocked him and made fun of him. And as you go through the story, everyone mocks him. The Roman soldiers mock him, random passerbyers mock him, the religious leaders mock him, the criminals on the cross mock him, Jews and Gentiles, governors and criminals, the educated and the ignorant, they all mock. And it makes you wonder, even this humanity that's so divided on so many things can find unity and unison in mocking the sun, and you just think, why? Like, where does that come from? And you know, if you need evidence that the world is broken, often you have to look no farther than middle school playgrounds. You know, one of the great mysteries of life is like, why can kids be so mean? Somerset Maughan and his, his classic novel on human bondage, which is kind of autobiographical, and in order to kind of draw you in into the kind of the depth of, of kind of the world's depravity, he takes you to a scene which in British culture is late 1900s, basically to a middle school playground. And he's telling the story of Philip Carey, which is kind of autobiographical of his life. But his, his mother died in, when he was about four or five. He was young. She died in childbirth. His father was a doctor and had died suddenly a few months before that. And he got sent away to live with his aunt and uncle. Uh, his aunt and uncle were in their 50s. Uh, he was a, a rector of an Anglican church. He was basically a pastor of an Anglican church. And um, he said they had never had children. And that was God's mercy to children. And so they couldn't handle him. He was kind of a creative kid, just kind of lived in his own little world. So they decided to send him off to boarding school. And on the second day at Kane School in Treckenbury, which was a uh, school for Anglicans, clergy's children. So you think this is a, a Christian school. Uh, he's there and he discovers that this is a house of torment. And they're out on the playground, and he's nine years old, and he has, a, he has a club foot, so he has a hard time moving. And they play this game called pig in the middle. It's kind of like our monkey in the middle, sort of. Your kids gather around in a circle, and you have the pig in the middle, and the kids run back and forth, and it's the pig's job to tag. And if you tag someone, you become uh, the pig, and he gets thrust into the middle, and this becomes a disaster. 
Because even though his spirit was so willing, his flesh, his foot just would not work. And then fueled by the humiliation and his bloody knees and his aching feet and teary eyes, he's trying to touch the other kids. And it's like middle school boys, like when they sense humiliation, it's like sharks in the water sensing blood. And they just start to mimic and start to mimic him with all the, the combination of awkwardness and quickness so they can never be, uh, he can't catch them. They're dragging their feet and they're howling and screaming. And then that night in the dormitory, one of the school bullies, his name was Singer, comes in with two of his cronies and they hold him down and he demands, let me see that foot. And he tries to relent and fight and eventually he sticks it out and they, they mock and they trace and they do all of these things. And he says, as he laid in there, the headmaster came in and they ran away. He said, as he laid in bed crying, it was not for the pain or the humiliation, but the rage at himself that he couldn't stop their torture. And he says, that night a nine-year-old boy died and a cold, hard man rose in his place. And it's one of like, why are middle schoolers so mean? And that's the 1890s, things really haven't changed now and anything has just gotten worse because now you can broadcast the humiliation to the whole world. And it makes you wonder when Matthew wants to foreground the, 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 the wickedness of this act, he foregrounds the mockery. He says, listen as they mock him. And it makes you wonder, because one of the things that Paul says is God will not be mocked. But then this whole story is God being mocked. So what's, what's happening here? And one of the things about the story is there's this deep irony that's running through the thread. I originally was going to key this in on the irony of the cross. And if you're from my generation, as soon as you hear the word ironic, a certain song just comes to mind. And... One of the ironies of that song is nothing in the song is actual irony. And what we have here is real irony because what God is doing is at every point he's going to turn the mockery on its head. And what they intend to slander and ridicule is actually proclaiming truth so deep and so precious they have no idea what they're actually saying. And so we're going to move through this and kind of look at the ironies that Matthew points out as they mock Jesus. But uh, the man that is mocked as king really is. The man who's mocked as powerless is powerful beyond measure. The man who's mocked as the one who can't save himself is actually saving others. And the man who's mocked for crying out in despair is actually trusting God. So let's look at these ironies of the cross. First, the man who's mocked as king really is. Let's pick up the story in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and they put on a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. And they spit on him and they took the reed and they struck him on his head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and they put his own clothes back on him and they led him away to crucify him. 
And so here you kind of have barracks, you know, kind of this is barrack room humor, locker room humor. You have a whole cohort of soldiers, probably anywhere from 600 to 1,000 men. So as you visualize this, this is not six or seven kind of people picking on somebody at the playground. You almost need to think, all right, they're, they're like in the gym, and you got a thousand people who are surrounded, mocking, attacking, as they relieve their boredom or unload their spite. It says they all gathered around, which is such an interesting word. That's the same word for the church. They gather, they come together in the gathering. They gather around, and then there's this uh, twisted a mock coronation ceremony. And I put in your bulletin, you can see some of the ways that the structure moves. Because I just want to give you a little foretaste of Matthew's just brilliance and beauty. And every passage has this beautiful structure. But you can see there's a movement where it's a, it's a mock coronation ceremony. Where first they gather and strip. Then they put the robe on him. Then the crown of thorns. Then the reed in his hand. Then the evidence of their, their homage. They kneel. And then they, they, they cry, hail, king of the Jews. But then, notice, then everything works in reverse. As instead of kneeling, now they spit on him, which is what they meant. Then they take the reed in his hand and they beat him with it. And they beat the head where the thorns and they strip him of his robe. And then they put his clothes back on him. So this reverse coronation ceremony that they're mocking him with. And, you know, they're celebrating, hail, king of the Jews. And one of the themes running through all of Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is the king of the Jews. And in chapter one, he sets up his, his dynastic succession with his, his, uh, the genealogy that he is in the line of the, he's the son of David, Israel's king. And then when the angel comes uh, to Mary, that she tells him he's going to save his people um, from his sins. And when the wise men, notice how Matthew's parallel in the gospels, it begins with wise Gentiles coming and bowing down saying where is he who's been born king of the Jews and then it concludes with the wicked Gentiles mocking that very claim and all of this is meant to be ironic they hail him as king of the Jews but they mean the exact opposite but Matthew knows and we know a deeper irony and then you just even look, peel beneath the surface of this cycle. There's so much here. There's so much richness in this passage that we can only scratch the surface of. But even in this, there's so much that they have no idea. Like they have no idea that the scarlet robe that they're putting on him is the same color as the temple curtains and the high priest, high priestly garment that's about to be ripped into. Like they have no idea as they're mocking him and dressing him that on the day of atonement, the high priest would strip off his normal priestly garments and there'd be a ceremony where he would don the high priestly attire with the scarlet robes of redemption. And then he would perform the sacrifice and then he would take them back off. They have no idea that they're performing the ceremony of this great high priestly transformation where the, 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 the time of Aaron's sons as the high priest is over and there's a new rise of a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, they don't know that's happening. They have no idea that that scarlet robe is the same color that symbolizes the sins of the people. And God has called out to his people, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. 
Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white, or white as wool, I will make them whiter than snow. They have no idea the color of the robe that they're making fun actually is a pictorial symbolism of the greatest act the world will ever know of the spotless Lamb of God bearing our sins for us. <laughs> they don't know any of that as they mock. And so you think about it, even if you've endured mocking in your life, most likely what was said, they had no idea. They had no idea what they were saying, and God in his glory can use it to display and make you something great. But here from the soldiers, they're mocking him as king, and the deep irony is that he really is in a way that they just have no idea. But then as it moves forward, then he gets mocked as being powerless. Pick up the story as 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means a place of a skull, they ordered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. All these things are fulfilling prophecies from the Psalms in different places. And again, they have no idea. They have no idea that this is happening. And when they sat down to watch over them and over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then two robbers who were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And then those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads. And that is a beautiful image of just the mocking, just wagging their heads and wagging their tongues. That comes from Psalm 22, where the people pass by wagging their tongues, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So they're attacking his claims that he destroyed the temple and he would build it again. And this is, this is mocking him for being so powerless. He's, he's powerless. Because that, that call that, you know, in their mind, they're thinking this call to kind of tear down the temple and then rebuild it in three days. That doesn't make sense. You know, buildings like the temple take generations to build. The only people who can build these quickly are people with tremendous resources and a whole army behind them. You know, in the Middle Ages, if you were the architect of a cathedral, you wouldn't see it completed in your lifetime. That's just how building projects were. And then he's claiming that he can tear it down and build it back in three days? No. And so they mock him for what they perceive as weakness. But then that's the irony is this is actually the greatest demonstration of power the world would ever know. He is tearing down a temple, but that temple is his body. They didn't understand what the temple actually was. The temple was the meeting place between heaven and earth. It was the place of sacrifice. It was the place where atonement for sin was made. It was the place where you could seek the face of the living Lord and come into his presence. It was the glory of the earth and the goal of creation. And they didn't know what it was. All throughout the Bible, the temple symbolizes where heaven and earth touch. Heaven and earth came down in Eden, but then they were cast out. Then heaven and earth came down at Sinai. Then heaven and earth came down in the tabernacle. Then heaven and earth come and they touch at the temple. But now heaven and earth, they touch in the person of Christ. As he's dying and rising again, he actually is building a temple far grander and far more glorious than anything they could ever imagine. 
And see, in their mocking, they think they're being witty and funny, but they have no idea the real temple that he's building. A temple that now expands nearly the entire globe. A temple that 2,000 years later, we are enter into right now a part of. You realize we are 6,542 miles away from the location where Jesus died. And his temple now expands all the way here and even farther. They have no idea he's building a temple so much more glorious than the ones they're mocking him about. A temple that will outlast them, outlast Roman empires, Ottoman empires, Ming dynasties, British empires, American empires. It will outlast them all. He's the one mocked as powerless, is utterly powerful. And then notice the man mocked as the one who can't save himself is actually in the process of saving the world, saving others. And when they pass by, they deride him, wagging their heads, they mock. And then notice um, in 41, then the chief priest with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, he saved others. He can't save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. Then we'll believe in him. And so he saves. Now, one of the themes of all of Matthew is that Jesus saves. He's going, that's his name, Jesus, Joshua, God saves. The angel told Mary, he will save his people from his sins. And when you even think about that word, right, what did they think of when they think of save? So you think of save, you hear the word, and different things might come to mind. So if you're more financially inclined, you might think, all right, save, savings are the things we need for uh, economic stability. Or if you're at least 20 years ago in the tech world, saving is the thing you needed to do every few minutes or you'd lose all your work. Or if, you're, if you like sports, you know, uh, to save is something a goalie does or a picture, pitcher does in the ninth inning. Think, what do we mean by save? You know, he came to seek and save the lost. He came to heal the sick, exercise the demons, feed the hungry, even raise the dead. And they say, we saw all of that, but you can't even save yourself. You know, I remember reading the story and just thinking, why doesn't he do something? I remember being about 11 years old and sitting in the plush wooden pew of Loganville Baptist Church. And it's about 11 or 12, uh, one of my imaginary heroes was Wolverine. I loved Wolverine, always wanted to be like him. Maybe it was because, you know, kind of an outcast kid who would love to be able to strike back. And I remember sitting at one, like, almost good Friday, like, going through this passage and starting to imagine what would it be like if Jesus just went Wolverine on them? And, you know, he's pinned, and then all of a sudden you can see the muscles start to shake, and then he whips out the nails and hops down and whoosh, and then, like, does the force pull to the, you know, different story, character. Anyway, force pull to the spear and just starts going to work. And you think, why wouldn't he? I mean, he could. He could do that. The only reason no one has ever done that in the history of the world is because they can't. But here's someone he could, so why didn't he? What's keeping him there? What kept him on the cross? It wasn't the nails. It wasn't the weakness in his muscles. What kept him there? It wasn't fear of the guards. And you know, the irony is that they don't understand that it's through dying that he's bringing life. It's through this sacrifice that he's bringing success to his mission. It's in denying that we find 
They don't understand where real life comes from. And I wonder if we do now. You know, sometimes I have a hard time watching movies because the two kinds of movies I like are book adaptations and then history uh, movies. So, for example, our 10-year-old this summer was reading The Hobbit, and she really wanted to watch the movies and said, uh-uh, uh-uh, you watch the movies after you finish the book. And so she got through the book, and then we sat down for at least one big movie night, and within 10 minutes, she's just squirming and flinching, like, oh, no, no, that's not how the book is. Stop. Why are you doing this? And, it, and so we didn't watch the other, we didn't watch the other movies. And that can often happen in book adaptations or historical movies. You know, one classic example of this, and we can ask our movie expert, Michael Allen, why directors choose to do such things. But like the movie Titanic, you know, there's, well, there's, there's a lot in that movie we could illustrate. But one of the scenes that's kind of remarkable is when, you know, the ship's going down. And there's a scene with all the kind of the rich British aristocracy, you know, the men, and they start attacking, like selfishly trying to get on the ships. And then the British sailors have to pull out their pistols and they're like, stand back, women and children first, stand back. And of course, that's such a historic, like, it's just egregious and every level of historical accuracy because that's not what any of them did. All accounts is that all of the men knew their role and responsibility. John Jacob Astor, the richest man in the world, sacrificed himself to put women and children on the boat. None of them did that. British sailors don't carry pistols. They never have. And then the producers and writers after that, they were asked, like, why did you portray them this way? That's, that's not what happened. And they said they didn't think if they portrayed it accurately that anyone would believe it. And it makes you wonder, is that true? Like, have the vestiges of self-sacrifice been so lost in our world that no one would believe it when somebody does it? And I don't know if that's true. I don't know if we really wouldn't believe it. You know, as a counterexample, I think about Harry Potter. I think the Harry Potter stories might actually prove the opposite, because one of the primary themes of the book is that self-sacrificial love is the most powerful force in the universe. You know, as they progress, Harry and the readers become aware that he has this secret, and it's a secret that makes him special. And it's a secret that enables him to finally overcome the forces of darkness. And it comes from on October 31st, 1981. There's trivia on Harry Potter's birthday. October 1st, 1981, Lily Potter, his mother, sacrificed her own life in order to protect her son from Lord Voldemort. And the act was so powerful that it places him under like this magical protection. And when Voldemort tries to kill him, the spell backfires, leaving Harry unharmed except for a scar on his forehead and Voldemort bodiless. And towards the end of the story, when Harry's trying to understand this and Dumbledore, the headmaster of Hogwarts, explains to him what actually happened. He said, Harry, your mother died to save you. If there's one thing Voldemort cannot understand, it is love. If I was the editor, I would put self-sacrificial love, not just love in the generic. It's a certain type of sacrificial love, but I was not asked to edit. Back to the quote. He didn't realize that love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves a mark, not a scar, not a visible sign, but to who have been loved so deeply 
even though the person who loved us is, is gone, it will give you protection forever. You see, there's no power like self-sacrificial love, and there's no example like self-sacrificial love like this, like this story that we're uh, reading. And if you know that Jesus died for me, it will leave a mark. It can leave a mark so deep, so powerful, that it can protect you from any insult. It can motivate you for any level of sacrifice. Every week we celebrate the marks of his, uh, his pouring out his life and our healing. And it can pour healing ointment into the broken wounds that any type of sin, brokenness, and mockery can cause. This is the great irony of the cross, that in his sacrifice, he brings life. And before we get to those marks, there's one more quick point we'll make, is that the man mocked for crying out in despair is actually trusting in God. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this is this man is calling Elijah. And one of them once took and ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and poured it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were there keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. And so here in this section, in many ways, we're kind of inching on to just holy ground. As the darkness descends and the maker of heaven and earth is being unmade. You know, creation was made with this powerful word spoken in victory. Let there be light. And the darkness dispelled. And here the darkness descends and there's this cry of agony. And so we're scratching on the door of one of life's greatest mysteries. I, I don't understand what it means for there to be a cry of abandonment from Jesus and there not being a rupture in the, the Trinity. And I don't think God ceased to be triune, whereas, you know, we got one man down and now our trio is down to a duo. But I don't understand what's happening, but there is this deep, deep cry of anguish and abandonment. And even as Joe was mentioning earlier, you know, think about um, the deeper the love, the more agony there is when it's broken. And you think about the love lost and anyone who's known love lost can feel what is felt. And I've sat with widows who have lost their husband after being married for 60 and 65 years. And there's a depth of loss there that's almost unimaginable. And then here he's being ripped apart from the relationship that he has with his father of an eternity of union and closeness. And in this moment, he's experiencing all of our hells laid on him at once. And then you walk back through the humiliation and the shame. He was stripped, he was exposed, and he was mocked as king, mocked as the savior, mocked here. He's mocked for thinking he's the son. 
And what's so interesting is all the mocking is going at his identity. Like, who do you think you are? And this savage unmaking of his identity. You know, going back to the original story about this nine-year-old boy who in the sounds of the mocking of the crowd, he said a boy died and a hard, cold man rose in his place. And here we see a man dying. And then the question is, what can then rise in its place? See, he entered the full scope and scale of this mocking so that in his place, millions of strong, humble, joyful, hopeful, loving men and women could rise. So every week we come and we take part in our, our tokens, our marks, our evidences of the greatest power the world has ever known, the greatest act of self-sacrificial love of someone giving himself so we can live. And so the bread, what does the bread represent? The bread represents his willingness to have his body broken so his spiritual body can be united and put back together. So if you've experienced any brokenness in your life, this is his promise and his hope that either now or when you stand before him, it will be healed and made whole. represents his blood that's shed for the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of all of those mocking voices and the, the, the majesty. And, you know, what's even more impressive than him not hopping down from the cross and going full Wolverine on them is for him to stay on the cross and say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That takes more strength than anything we can imagine. That's the gift given to us. Lord, we praise you for the cross. We praise you for the gift and the power of forgiveness for redemption. We ask that you forgive us because often we're like the soldiers or the, those who are passing by or even the criminals who we wag our tongues and wag our heads and we mock not knowing what it is we're saying. So forgive us for the times when we do that, but we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the redemption that can he purchased for us in our place. So help us all to know it and to live out of its beauty and its power. In your name I pray, amen.